Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Retailing route sales plunging in the United States as customers cut back amid the lockdown. No way Huawei, the U.S. government works to block supplies to China's tech giant and Sanofi standoff. The drug giant now saying the U.S. won't get vaccine priority. It's Friday. Let's make a move. Welcome, as always, to First Move on this Friday. It is great to be with you. And the good news from Wall Street to begin is that the big board is back on board. What am I talking about? Well, the New York Stock Exchange announcing that some workers will be allowed back onto the world-famous trading floor after next week. It follows two months of working remotely, a powerful symbol, I think, of resiliency and the path to recovery, however long it is during these challenging times. And I tell you what, challenging is the word for many reasons. First up, data this morning showing U.S. retail sales falling more than 16% in April. That's the biggest drop on record during a month where we saw the biggest ever spike in job losses too. Remember, retail key here in the United States in particular, consumer spending makes up some 70% of GDP. But it's a global story. Take a look at China too. Retail sales fell again in April and urban unemployment hit some 6%. Now, you know my feelings on this data. It's pretty impossible to do a comparison with other nations, but it is a reminder that turning economies back on following shutdown is a pretty gradual process. Take a look at what we saw for Asia markets too. We saw Hong Kong reporting a 9% plunge in growth in the first quarter. That, in fact, the biggest decline on record in Europe to Germany now officially in recession. We've got all the details on those numbers coming up as well. But for now, take a look at U.S. futures. We are lower this coming after the U.S. Commerce Department signaled a ratcheting up of pressure on China's Huawei. Let's get to the drivers with all the details on what we're seeing this morning. And we begin with record retail sales drop of some 16.4% in April. Claire Sebastian joins us on this. Claire, I'm stumbling over the numbers. They're so huge. Perhaps it's no surprise because, of course, it came amid a lockdown. Is this the worst? I think that's the key here, too. I think it's possible that it is, mm. Julia. I mean, this is April was the month where pretty much everyone was on lockdown. In May, we're, we're starting to see uh, some small numbers of stores opening up. I think the big question is with, with unemployment at 14.7%, maybe even much higher than that, will people actually want to spend and what will happen to the stores that, that have been closed for so long? I think, you know, we're seeing with news around J. Crew and Neiman Marcus, uh, uh, rumors of, of a JCPenney bankruptcy filing coming, that, that there is collateral damage uh, from this, especially for retailers who weren't particularly strong going into this crisis. But I want to pull out some of the, the, the numbers that we got from this report today. Just about the worst was clothing and accessories. That was down 78% month on month. Department stores down some 29% month on month. Interestingly, grocery was also down 13% from the previous month. I think some of the stockpiling might have actually abated now, although it was up 13% from the previous year. But e-commerce, I know what you're thinking, Julia, this is one area where we have seen increases still increasing, actually accelerating. That was up 8% month on month, 21.6% year on year. So that continues to be resilient. And that begs the question, while these stores have been closed, many of the high street stores, what is happening to that market share? And will this shift 
be permanent. It's such an important point. And to your point as well, even as we start to see stores reopen, and we'll be discussing this later on in the show, do consumers have the confidence to come back? takes time. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. Now to rising tensions between the US and China. The US moving to restrict Huawei's access to chip suppliers. Beijing could retaliate by targeting US companies, including Apple, Boeing. That, according to Chinese state media, Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, it's almost like a deja vu from about a year ago. And back we are again. Is it likely that we see the United States ratcheting up the pressure once again on, on China? The noises are there. The question is, do they do it amid an economic slowdown, as we were just discussing? It's amazing the timing. You're absolutely right. And what you can see, I think, from this administration is it wants to be tough on China. And this is something that is important to the re-election prospects for the president of the United States. That's according to Greg Valliere and some of the political economists, who political strategists who watch this. If you listen to Peter Navarro, one of the president's uh, top China hawks and uh, a trade advisor, he was just on a CNN just a few moments ago calling it the uh, China virus again and saying that because the communist elites in China kept the uh, the virus there under wraps for so many weeks. It directly resulted in the deaths of American citizens. So you can see this sort of China rhetoric, this China to blame rhetoric is uh, is coming back. And this is on the same day that the the, the Commerce Secretary said that they were going to um, that they were going to be tough and we're going to move to, to try to keep uh, some of this technology out of the hands of the Chinese to use for manufacturing in their in their um, semiconductor industry. So just a fascinating moment here it was just a few months ago, really six months ago, where the U.S. government and the Chinese were heralding this, this trade deal, right? Um, and now this trade deal certainly seems to be moving backwards. I mean, this is the problem with what we've seen over the past few weeks as well. The president suggesting even as late as last night, perhaps cutting off relations with China. Yet at the same time, you get a statement from the Treasury and from negotiators in China saying, look, we're still on track as far as the phase one trade deal is concerned. The rhetoric is one thing. Actions such as a step up in tariffs is quite another when your economy is in free fall and we don't know what recovery looks like. It's a gamble. Well, plenty of business groups. Oh, yes. And plenty of business groups. They've been saying they would like to see those tariffs pulled off as a way to stimulate the U.S. government or U.S. economy. Right. Because it is American importers who pay for those tariffs. And they've been asking for weeks now that the president consider that. But the president instead, you're right, his rhetoric is quite the contrary. Yeah. We shall see. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. Now, prior to this, China, of course, calling a return for stable relations with the United States after President Trump said he might cut ties with Beijing completely, as I just mentioned there. Ivan Watson is live in Hong Kong. Ivan, I have to say, for viewers that were watching us yesterday, I spoke too soon and I take it back. The scold war is back with steroids. And yet the message even a few hours ago seemed to be from China that they were calling for calm and they wanted to be careful about the verbal handling of what the president said. Look, uh, this is uh, a back and forth. There's some kind of dialogue here and there are different actors at play here. The the message was conciliatory coming out of the foreign ministry of China. uh, But you also have uh, publications like the Global Times, which has always taken a much, much harder view uh, against the U.S. Uh, and we have to keep in mind that both governments play to their own domestic audiences at times. And both governments, I think, are guilty of 
bashing their rivals at times as well. But make no mistake, this is also the two biggest economies in the world. They are intertwined. They do depend on each other. And trying to make sense of the threats and the bluster and then the conciliatory messages, it's, it's, it's quite difficult to do at times like this. I'm going to make a pivot right now because, of course, we're still dealing with a pandemic uh, and we're still dealing with uh, new cases of coronavirus that are taking place in China, in some other East Asian countries that we're seeing some success and breathing a tentative sigh of relief that the worst of the, the first wave of this pandemic was behind them. Take a look at this report, please. After a five-week closure, the bars in Hong Kong are back open. Oh, that's good. This is my first beer in a bar in more than a month. You know, this city has done surprisingly well with the first wave of this deadly pandemic. And now after the partial shutdown, Hong Kong is trying to open back up. In the Asia-Pacific region, South Korea, Japan, Thailand, Australia and New Zealand have all had far lower numbers of confirmed infections and fatalities compared to countries in much of the rest of the world. In fact, these five countries combined suffered a fraction of the death toll seen in the U.S. state of New Jersey since the pandemic began. And now these countries are starting to reopen. But the virus continues to present challenges. South Korea never imposed a nation or even citywide lockdown and only recorded 260 coronavirus deaths. But now it's frantically contact tracing and testing tens of thousands of people after an outbreak in several nightclubs in the capital, Seoul. The South Korean president issuing a fresh warning to the people. It's not over until it's over. We must never lower our guard regarding epidemic prevention. In mainland China, the country where the coronavirus was first detected back in December, Shanghai Disney reopened this week with visitors wearing masks and the park requiring new social distancing measures for added safety. But after discovering six new coronavirus cases in the original epicenter city of Wuhan, authorities vowed to test all 11 million residents for the disease. It feels a little bit like two steps forward, one step back. The infection curve flattens, places start to reopen, and then unexpected clusters of coronavirus pop up again. While some Asian countries are gradually reopening schools, shopping malls and movie theaters, international travel is still largely paralyzed. But that could change. Australia and New Zealand, two countries on the Tasman Sea, are discussing the possibility of creating a bilateral coronavirus-free travel bubble. I would note such a discussion has only been possible as a result of the world-leading results on both sides of the Tasman to get the virus under control. In countries that so far escaped the worst of the pandemic, we may be getting a glimpse of what the new normal will look like in the age of coronavirus. So, Julia, even countries like South Korea, which have had a, a success against the coronavirus that, that many American states could only dream of, uh, is now struggling with an outbreak 
linked to nightclubs in Seoul, 153 new cases in the last uh, week or so. And they have had to roll back some of their advances, delay the reopening of schools by a week, mm -hmm. shut down nightclubs. And, and that is kind of part of the new normal that we're seeing. Even countries that have done well, they are phased, involved in phased reopenings, and they're having to calibrate those reopenings depending on uh, what kind of risk assessment they feel from new outbreaks. Julia. Absolutely. You have to be so ready to recalibrate and switch things if you see uh, virus adjustments and case adjustments here. There are many lessons in that, Ivan. Thank you so much for uh, bringing that to us. Uh, Ivan Watson there. Have a good weekend. All right, let's move on. Europe's largest economy just had its worst quarter in more than a decade. Germany's GDP shrinking by 2.2% in the first quarter, confirming that it's in technical recession. And that was before the full impact of the coronavirus on economic activity hit. Frederick Pleitgen is alive at the German-Austrian border. Fred, great to have you with us. As I just mentioned there, as bad as this is, we know the month after likely worse. This is the challenge that many countries are facing and now Germany's officially in recession. Yeah, and I think Germany especially faces that challenge because, of course, Germany is not only, Julia, a very large economy, but is also right. such an export-based economy as well. And I think a lot of these German companies are now noticing that while they have overcome the first phase of the pandemic and some of them are able to go back online and start producing again, there's not necessarily very big markets for the products that they're trying to export. One of the companies, as you know, that we visited was uh, Volkswagen, and they were very happy to be able to start up their factories again and be able to put output out there again. And now they've actually had to scale back production once again because demand for new cars is simply so low, not just in Germany, but in other places around the world as well. And that's something that a lot of these large German companies are now finding out. The automotive sector, of course, is one of them. Uh, the machine tool sector is another one. A lot of the big construction projects around the world, they use German machinery. And that's something, obviously, that's also in very low demand around the world uh, as well. And then you have large German companies like, for instance, Lufthansa, who are still flying at very low capacity. They want to increase that. But a lot of them say they're uncertain when they'll be able to get back uh, to levels that are at least similar to what they saw before. So the German government has said that it's not surprised that the economy is still in a lot of trouble. Uh, the German government actually yesterday put out uh, new numbers as to how much taxes they think they're going to take in. And they think that they're going to the, uh, miss their target by about 100 billion euros. That's a very, very big number. And it comes at a time where the German economy is already on life support. One of the interesting things about Germany is that the unemployment rate hasn't really substantially gone up very much, but that's because the German government is essentially paying a lot of companies to keep people employed so then they'll be ready to go when the economy does come back. But now with the economy in recession, it really seems very difficult to determine when exactly that's going to be and how fast the comeback is actually going to be, Julia. It's... Such an important question, and you ask many of them there, but it's interesting to hear you describe Germany on life support when, if I look at some of the other nations in Europe, their situation is actually far worse in terms of caseloads or what they've seen and a lack of ability to provide the financial firepower to support the economy that Germany has. What about tourism very quickly? Because I know this is something that you're looking at and you've looked at all sorts of segments of the economy. How are they going to fare in this regard? As far as tourism is concerned? Yes. 
Yeah, look, that's that's one of the huge issues, not just here mm-hmm. in Germany, but of course uh, Europe-wide. And we've heard uh, the past couple of days from the European Union that they are really desperate to try and find ways to get tourism back on this continent going again. Right now, all the borders are, go- are, are closed, obviously, or most of the borders uh, are closed. And they're trying to find ways to get people to be able to cross the border in ways that are safe so the pandemic doesn't spread. Germany and Austria... I wouldn't say are trailblazers, but are some of the first nations that are at least easing some of these border restrictions. They fully want to open the border again on June 15th. But, you know, I've been here in Salzburg in Austria throughout the entire course of the day. And I've talked to uh, people who own hotels, people who own restaurants. Restaurants for the first time today are allowed to open again. It really is very slow going for the moment. And they're not sure when exactly it's going to come back. So that's going to be a very, very difficult thing to do just to get that cross-border travel going again. And just to give you an idea about how difficult it actually is, Julia, right now between Germany and Austria, they can somewhat open the border once again because the two countries are very similar as to how the coronavirus is playing out there. Both have been doing very well in containing it and keeping the death toll low. But if you look at the border between Italy and Austria, and there's a lot of cross-border traffic usually there as well, it's simply out of the question to try and open that anytime soon because, of course, Italy, and especially northern Italy, has been so hard hit. It's a giant challenge for the European Union on an economic scale and then also, of course, on a political scale as well with countries like Italy saying, look, you can't just open the borders between Germany and Austria and leave other countries out because for them, of course, tourism is such a huge economic factor as well. going to be a giant challenge, Julia. Yeah, again, not how the Eurozone was built and how the framework was meant to be applied, but these are unique times. Fred, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. To Fred Pleitgen in Salzburg there, and it looks very pretty behind you, I have to say. All right, we're going to take a break. Still to come, retail in ruins after the industry's worst month on record. The CEO of Coach handbag maker Tapestry joins us to talk about the road to recovery. And the Sanofi standoff, the French drug maker in trouble with its own government after promising the United States their vaccine first. Stay with us. That's coming up. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where we're headed for a pullback at the open on news that U.S. is trying to block global chip suppliers from selling to Chinese tech giant Huawei. That's the picture that we see right now. The move likely to trigger fresh uncertainty for tech companies in particular. Of course, one of the supports of the broader markets, Asian electronics giant Foxconn said today earnings fell almost 90 percent in the first quarter as top client Apple reportedly pulled back their production plans all tying into what we're seeing for emerging markets, too, suffering amid the global COVID-19 outbreak, too. The MSCI Emerging Market Index falling more than 18 percent this year amid fears that the pandemic is only accelerating the trend of deglobalization. Our next guest has spent years looking into those trends, as well as the emergence of the virtual economy and the fracturing of the Internet among many things. Risha Sharma is the chief global strategist at Morgan Stanley Investment Management, and he's also the author of Democracy on the Road, a 25-year journey through India. Risha, great to have you with us. Um, The stories couldn't actually be more poignant, I think, in light of all the things that you've been warning about. Many of the trends that we're seeing were already in place, like trade restrictions and, and borders, barriers rising between nations. China, U.S. again, an illustration today. 
Yes, Julian. So I think that's been the unique nature of this crisis, that in the past, when we look at crises, we always think about how the world's going to be turned on its head before the crisis and after the crisis in terms of how the world looks. I think what's unique about the nature of this crisis is that many of the trends that were already in play before this outbreak, those trends have accelerated, whether it's got to do with deglobalization, it's got to do with digitization, or even things like uh, debtophobia. I think that these trends were in place after the global financial crisis of 2008, and they have been accelerated by this crisis. In a way, what we thought would play out over five or 10 years has in some ways played out in five or six weeks. You know, digital traffic's up 50, 70% for the reasons that we know. Similarly, we have seen a big increase uh, in uh, this, this rhetoric coming out for deglobalization. You have countries in India where the word self-reliance is the new buzzword. Mm. So it's sort of um, interesting to see as to how these trends have just accelerated after this crisis. You know, some of this is a necessity, to your point, about the, uh, the suggestion from India now that they want to have more self-reliance. We've seen issues with things like PPP for nations going, actually, we shouldn't be reliant on other countries at times of crisis. But this avenue in particular slows the recovery, surely. It damages the recovery, and this is critical too. Yes, I think that's been in place since 2008. Uh, so it's uh, correct about that. The productivity growth of the global economy has been falling despite the tech boom over the last uh, 10 uh, years or so. And I think that deglobalization has been one of the factors behind it. Remember, deglobalization really began after the 2008 financial crisis and refers to not only the slowdown in the flow of goods and services, but also in capital flows and migrant flows. And the fourth vector is now to do with digital flows, that you have countries much more keen to make sure that data is stored locally rather than crossing borders. So we're seeing this unique phenomenon where data flows are rising at an exponential pace within countries, but between countries, uh, we're seeing walls come up as far as this is concerned. So this new Cold War that's building up between US and China, particularly relating to tech, these are all factors which are not that great for productivity. Now, of course, my hope is that one good thing that may come out of this crisis is the fact that there's a lot of refocus on how, on the workforce and an increased focus on automation, uh, on robotics, trends which were in play before the crisis, but now those have also been accelerated. So I'm hoping that that offsets some of this negative uh, feedback loop coming from the rising talk of deglobalization. In the short term, though, we've seen governments step in to provide stimulus. We've seen central banks step in to provide stimulus. The lines between those two things have got incredibly blurred, I think. And I think you probably agree on this, too. At the same time, you've, you've shown a great chart and talked about the stock market in India and compared it to the stock market in the United States and said, actually, if you look at the path, they're very similar. It's, it's liquidity-driven. What does this mean? What's the message in there? for investors at this moment? Yeah, there's this epic battle going on there between fundamentals and liquidity, which is that asset prices are being propped up by cheap money, something that was happening before the crisis and is happening even more now. But, you know, because the central banks can print all the money they want, but they can't necessarily control where it goes. And I think that that's what's going on, that 
the money keeps finding its way into the stock market and even within the stock market in a very concentrated way towards a few uh, of these quality and growth companies uh, out there. So therefore, we're seeing this sort of complete disconnect that a lot of people can't wrap their heads around, which is that a deterioration in economic fundamentals, and yet the stock markets, especially in the U.S., holding up way above where other stock markets are uh, in the world or where the stocks are justified by fundamentals. So on a daily basis, these correlations are very high, which is what I sort of point out to you in that chart. But if you really step back and look at it, the U.S. stock market has been the only game in town, in a way, over the last decade or so. Emerging markets have had the worst stock market uh, decade in post-war history. This has been the worst decade for emerging market returns since the Great Depression. The U.S. stock market keeps powering ahead. The U.S. stock market has tripled in value over the last decade. But that's so been led by a half a dozen companies, these marquee companies that we all know about, uh, which have become an asset class unto them themselves, right? All the Amazon, Apple, uh, Google, Facebook, Netflix, Microsoft, these six companies have just become a completely different universe and the market caps are so big now that the combined market caps of these companies today is some, over six some, trillion. Absolutely. Yeah. I was about to say some of the market caps of these individual tech companies are bigger than nation states, quite frankly. And, and to your point... Where does this all lead? Is tie all the threads together for me? Because one of the big pillars here has been technology companies. You're saying actually one of the unfortunate but positive benefits of what we're going through is the advancement of technology. How should we be investing, looking at the world from here on in? Challenges and, and positives. Right. So you're completely correct, which is, in fact, uh, you know, this interesting tidbit that the uh, combined market cap of these six companies is bigger than any stock market in the world, uh, except possibly China. So that's really how big they've become. Now, the issue is, what do we do going forward? Going forward, my own sort of recommendation is that we have to look at beaten down quality names outside of this cohort, because this cohort it, you know, has this almost manic following, and that has increased uh, following this crisis. So a lot of the good news is already in the price as far as these very large mega cap companies are concerned. And we now have to start looking at quality companies that have been beaten down because the rest of the world's stock markets outside of these six companies have practically done nothing for the last five years in dollar terms. So we now have to start looking at quality companies in sectors such as energy, in the more consumer-oriented sectors. We have to start looking at companies there to try and build more of a barbell portfolio rather than just put all our eggs in one basket and keep on following these you know, very hyped up tech companies that have already done so well and that have done even better this year given the nature of this crisis. So a lot of this is in the price of these very large mega cap companies. Yes, don't get a bit confused. You've got to look through the short term and invest for the long term here at some of the opportunities. Risha, great to have you with us, as always. Risha Sharma, the Chief Global Strategist for Morgan Stanley Investment Management there. Risha, stay safe and great to see you. All right, we're counting down to the market open. Stay with us. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running for the final session this week. And we have a lower open across the board 
as expected amid a flurry of negative news flow this morning. Firstly, U.S. retail sales dropping more than 16 percent in April. That's the worst reading on record. Sales at clothing and accessory stores were hardest hit. The numbers even worse when you strip out auto sales. Now, as bad as today's numbers were, they were also expected. The latest flashpoint, meanwhile, between the United States and China, unexpected. The Commerce Department looking to block global chip makers from selling to China's Huawei, the U.S. targeting chips that are the direct product of U.S. software and technology. Chinese state media says China could retaliate with possible measures against Apple, Boeing and other U.S. corporate giants. Heightened trade tensions, the last thing needed as economies begin the road to recovery, with some U.S. states currently in the process of easing lockdown restrictions. Global luxury brand Tapestry has begun to reopen stores across the nation. The coach handbag maker is one of the few retailers that did not furlough full-time employees as coronavirus ravaged the industry. It's paying salaries and benefits until the end of May. Joining us now is Jide Saitam. He's the chairman and CEO of Tapestry. Sir, fantastic to have you on the show. An important move, I think, a decision that you made as a company. Great to have you with us. An important decision that you made to retain workers, continue to pay them, your full-time workers. Talk to me about that decision first and what reopening stores looks like in practice. Um, so we, we've been very focused all along on three key things, Julia. Um, you know, One was we moved very quickly to fortify our financial position. Uh, and we think that that was a um, critical part in, in, in being able to think really long term about our people. So we moved to cut our inventories, to reduce our capex, to draw down our revolver. And that's a never ending process just to make sure that our, our, our foundations financially are strong as possible. Um, two, we really um, focused on leading with our values when it comes to people. And that's our people. That's our consumer. Uh, and that's 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 you know, also broadly the community, the communities that we're a part of. And, and we've, we've done that, um, as you point out, in terms of of um, being really holding out. You know, we realize we're not immune to the laws of gravity, but we've held out longer than our peers in terms of protecting our people. And then also in terms of contributing back to our communities, we've, we've made a number of donations, one we're particularly proud of in, in New York where we, we're supporting, we've put up funds to support loans to small businesses here. Mm. Um, and we've done that in part because we've had the benefit of being able to leverage a global footprint. So we saw the you know, the gathering storm in China earlier with our very substantial operations in, in China and Asia more broadly. And we've, been, and we've been able to take learnings, take key insights from there and move those across the globe um, for maximum input, um, impact across our businesses. And so feel very good about, you know, about that in, in what clearly is a very challenging and sober, sober environment. Absolutely. And I think to your point, the fact that you had experience of what reopening looks like, what consumer behavior looks like in in China and, of course, in South Korea is is pretty pivotal at this moment. Talk to me about what kind of recovery you're seeing, because we just mentioned Chinese retail sales data is still under pressure. Let's call it that. What are you seeing from customers and what kind of recovery and how are they buying? Because I know there's a real online focus there, too. 
Absolutely. And, and so one comment I'd make that we that we saw and are seeing in China is that the Chinese consumer is courageous. You know, they've moved from fear to resilience in a relatively short period of time. Uh, and that was a real insight for us. And it's something that we're watching closely as we look around the globe. Um, but the real key learning was that there isn't this aha moment where you go, you know, a light switch kind of moment where you go from all off to all on. It's a gradual process, um, one consumer at a time. Uh, and it's a process, actually, that because during the period of time that our stores in China and in, eight, and in South Korea, for example, were largely shut to today, where all of our 400 plus stores across China and South Korea are open, is that, um, that when they were shut, you know, our focus in terms of engagement with our consumer was on digital. Uh, and so that, that transition across from digital to physical is key. Um, China clearly is hugely innovative in terms of technology, social media technology, consumer technology. And we saw that consumers in China wanted to stay engaged with our brands digitally, even when the stores were closed. But as the stores opened, they stayed very engaged. And so we, mm. we one of the things we loved seeing was with WeChat, where we were live streaming with store associates and consumers who were sitting at, in their living room often at times. We were showing them exciting new product. Um, they were engaging with, with, our, with our people and our product. They, you know, they purchased product and we'd either ship it to them or early on as we started opening with, with curbside or storefront um, availability, they'd come and they'd pick it up. So we're encouraged. Um, it's a gradual process, um, but it's one that we've seen, whether it's in China, that is, is, has come over time to where, um, where our, our, our productivity is, is, is really at historical levels right now. Um, we've also noted, for example, in South Korea, where the consumer who does come back into the physical environment um, is somewhat younger than the broader profile. And that's something that we're actually seeing. You, know, you mentioned how you know, we're, we're excited that by the end of this week, we'll have 300 um, stores open in North America. Uh, and we're, we're, um, we opened 40 about two weeks ago here in North America. And we saw some of the same trends there. First of all, it's gradual. It's a step at a time. And then that blurring of the line between digital and physical is critical. Uh, and then a somewhat younger consumer um, is, are, is initially um, those that, that, that you know, um, come out into, you know, wade out into a difficult world. The young and the fearless. I, it's funny when I'm listening to you speaking, it's just the profile of a consumer is so different in the United States. The handling of the caseloads and the testing and the tracing is so different, too. Um, Gina, just explain to me what decisions you'll make and how quickly over how many staff you'll need beyond the end of this month and, and how quickly you'll make decisions. And are you negotiating rents? Because you have power in terms of store footprint to push rents down or force rents down to help you with the money here. Talk to me about those two things. Absolutely. Tough conversations. Absolutely, Julia. Absolutely. So with, with respect to, um, with, um, to, to reopening, we're really back to leading with our values and taking the cue from our people. Uh, and so, you know, we're very focused clearly on, on regulatory openings, but, but um, yeah, above and beyond the regulatory um, authority to open, 
We're focusing on where our people are comfortable coming back in, where our consumers are telling us that they want that physical interaction in addition to the digital interaction that they've had for so long. Uh, and then we're doing it in a very graduated way. Again, this is not a light switch. It's a gradual process, but it's a process that has an inevitable, inevitable in our view, arc to it both through what we've seen with our global footprint and then what we've seen over time historically, because we've clearly, you know, in over 80, in roughly 80 years of existence, we've navigated storms, not quite as large as this one, but our, our, our takeaway from that is that with a, um, it, that where our brands are positioned, you know, um, we're very well positioned as consumers come back in because we see um, in this era, particularly this um, kind of COVIDian area, that consumers are very focused on value and values. Um, and our products provide, deliver um, tremendous um, value, high quality, beautiful products at, at, at reasonable prices. And our, the values of our brands from the coach, Kate Spade, Stuart Weitzman perspective are very in line with where consumers, particularly millennials and Gen Zs are going today. We'll see. And rent, you didn't mention rent. Was that an oversight? Are you still then, working yes, on lowering rent. rent? And then I have to go. Yeah, it, it, that's yeah, very much of a work in progress, but one yeah. we feel we feel you know it's 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 inevitable to find that right balance between brick and mortar and digital. Yeah, see as you go, Judy. Great to have you with us. Thank you so much, and uh, stay in touch, please. And we'll uh, we'll see how our consumers come back, particularly the young and the fearless. The chairman and CEO Terrific. of Tapestry there. Thank you, Julia. <laughs> Thank you. Real great to chat. Thank you. Thank All right, you. coming up on First Move, the bust-up between the pharmaceutical giant and the French government. Why the CEO of Sanofi is being summoned to see President Macron after this. Welcome back to First Move. A row is simmering between the Elysee Palace and one of the world's biggest pharmaceutical companies. French President Emmanuel Macron is summoning the CEO of Sanofi to a meeting after the Paris-based company suggested that the U.S. would have priority access if it succeeds in finding a coronavirus vaccine. Cyril Vanier joins us with the details. This is fascinating for me, Cyril, the challenges of taking funding for research, prioritizing, therefore, who gets the product if you manage to succeed and who actually buys it in the end. Talk us through the details on this one. Yeah. Absolutely, Julia. And I'll tell you, Sanofi managed to really get under the French government's skin with this one. Normally, Sanofi, a French pharmaceutical lab, is uh, lauded as a, as a French industrial giant here. But when they announced and when the CEO of Sanofi announced on Thursday that the U.S. would get to order vaccines as a matter of priority if and when this vaccine ends up being developed a year and a half to two years from now, uh, the the government just went ballistic. There's no other way to put it. So the prime minister immediately called the president of Sanofi, reminded them that France believes in equal access to the vaccine for all. And then the president uh, said that he believes the vaccine should be a universal common good and should not be subjected to the laws of the free market. Uh, and, and, and that's exactly what had happened, because the reason Sanofi was ready to prioritize the U.S. is because the U.S. has actually put money on the table to the tunes of tens of millions of dollars to help them develop and fund their research into this vaccine. Well, since then, Sanofi has changed their messaging a little bit. They have said that the vaccine would be available for all, that they're also developing the vaccine here in Europe. Having said that, 
the substance of the matter hasn't changed that much because Sanofi is encouraging, nudging the European Union to do what the U.S. has done, which is to put money on the table as well and help them with the development of this vaccine. The last thing I'll say, Julia, is that developing a vaccine like this costs hundreds of millions of dollars. It is a risk for a pharmaceutical lab like Sanofi, especially when you don't know if the vaccine will work. It's so true. Someone has to pay for the research. It's a global good right now. Everyone's on the race. In fact, there should be a global amount of pot of money going towards this research, quite frankly, but that's a whole different story. Sarah Vanier, thank you so much for joining us on that story. All right, the CEO of Dubai Airport says restarting travel depends on getting a vaccine. About 86 million people went through the Dubai International Airport last year. And in an interview with Arjun Defterius, the CEO explains what passengers can now expect. What we've had to do is reconfigure the airport to conform to all the social distancing rules. So the check-in has been segregated. We've now got barriers separating people. We've got stickers on the floor to make sure that people don't breach the social distancing distances. And, of course, we'll have our staff protected in in masks and, and various hazmat accessories to make sure that they can direct people. Plexiglass screens in front of check-in desks And all the way through the entire airport process, people will have to observe those social distances. You didn't mention on-site testing. The false negative results are scaring people. It doesn't rebuild confidence. You're not confident in it, then? Well, I think the thing is there are two problems with it, the false negatives and the reliability of it, and also the time it takes and whether it's scalable. The difficulty is you might be able to operate some form of pre-flight testing using the current techniques with a limited number of passengers. But if each of those passengers needs to wait 10 minutes before the result is there, again, that's a further limit on our capacity. I think there are techniques being developed which will take that pre-flight testing to a much, much quicker result. Now, if we get that and it's not so intrusive, that actually might be quite a good way to go. We're going to take a break here on First Move. But coming up, the TikTok takeover, our guide to the video sharing app. You'll see all the details next. Welcome back to First Move in Life Under Lockdown. Social media has become a staple to help us connect with one another and sometimes just blow off steam. The hottest app right now? TikTok. And if you don't know about it, don't worry, because we have got you covered. It's owned by Chinese internet tech company ByteDance. TikTok is a short-form video app, and it's become the place to dance and lip-sync your way to internet stardom. It originally was considered an app for teens, but hey, now it's for big kids too. Hundreds of millions of people have downloaded it from the millennials all the way to the boomers. And luckily, our own Max Foster is... TikTok famous and has this guide to the latest trends. Watch. When a guy drops off shopping for his grandmother during lockdown, he asks her to do a TikTok dance with him. The same dance has been done many times before. But the secret to TikToking is making it your own. And if the lockdown had an anthem on the platform, this is it. Bored in a house and I'm in a house bored. 
The platform's biggest star, American teenager Charlie D'Amelio, garnering 8 million likes with her take on the sound. D'Amelio's profile reveals she has an astonishing 55 million followers and getting on for 4 billion likes on her videos, dwarfing any of the celebrities that joined the platform after her. Like D'Amelio, Australian Dante Muller found stardom dancing and lip-syncing in his bedroom, his mother getting in on the act in this video, which has been viewed nearly 5 million times. Um, beforehand, I think everyone was kind of just doing it for fun, and now it's kind of like a way to escape, but now I think everyone's doing it, everyone and their grandma, just because they're bored sitting at home, so I think they might as well do something creative. And the power of the platform lies in the fact that anyone can go viral if they hit the right vibe. British psychologist Julie Smith has gained hundreds of thousands of followers with educational videos like this. Your brain can read a word faster than it can label a colour. It's a lovely, light-hearted platform, and that's partly what drew me to it in the first place, is things that just give you that little lift, that just bring you a moment's joy or make you laugh for a moment. So, you know, those, those little... Um, those little moments aren't to be, you know, dismissed because that can help you to get through a day. Girl, don't do it. It's not worth it. Even journalists are finding the joy on TikTok, trying to make sense of lockdown like everyone else. Max Foster, CNN, in social media's Wild West. I may be biased, but I think Max is best. That's it for the show. I'm Julia Chasley. Stay safe this weekend and we'll see you next week. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.